So we're continuing in our series, City on a Hill or Sinking Ship. And just as a reminder, the title of the series is taken from John Winthrop. He said, as we'll see in a quotation here, that Massachusetts Bay Colony was to be like a city on a hill so that all the nations of the earth could look to it as a model of Christian love and how a Christian civilization works. So that's the first part. The contrast is the sinking ship. Why polish brass on a sinking ship from Hal Lindsey's late great planet Earth? And we saw that these two visions of the future and of prophecy in the Bible have very different impacts on how people build civilization or don't build civilization, as the case may be. So the plan of the series, Old Testament teaching on final things, then New Testament teaching on final things, and then we finished that last time. Now we're going to look at American history and final things, and then finally we'll make some applications. And I think actually the applications will make a lot of sense in light of some of the quotations that we'll look at today in light of the passages in the Old and New Testament. I'm not going to go through the whole review of the Old Testament and New Testament. We've been through this before, so I'm just going to let you look at that at your leisure. We'll move on now to the city on a hill. Uh, Mr. John Winthrop, he was an English Puritan. They moved from England to New England in the 1620s, 1630s. The pilgrims in the 1620s, the Puritans in the 1630s. There was a great wave of migration because of some of the shenanigans of Charles I., that drove a lot of the Puritans out, especially like middle class, upper middle class, and they settled in Massachusetts. Here in his sermon delivered on the travels over from England, he said the following. He said, we must delight in each other, make others' conditions our own, rejoice together, mourn together, labor and suffer together, always having before our eyes our commission and community in the work as members of the same body. Now, in the context of his delivery here, he's been talking about how God, when you enter into engagements or covenants, God holds you very strictly to those covenants. So if you say you're going to do specific things as a body, whether that's a church or a nation or family, God's going to hold you to it. He uses the example of Saul, who is engaged to do what? Wipe out the Amalekites. So God held him to that engagement. You must do this. And he failed to do it, so God rejected him from being king. So he's saying these are the duties God has imposed on us as we come together as a civil body. We must delight in one another, have sympathy and charity for one another, rejoice with them that rejoice, weep with them that weep, labor and suffer as members of the same body. Then he goes on. So shall we keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. The Lord will be our God and delight to dwell among us as his own people and will command a blessing upon us in all our ways. So that we shall see much more of his wisdom, power, goodness, and truth than formerly we have been acquainted with. Now this is very interesting. If you ever get a chance to read the founding era and the theologians and even statesmen of that era, you find something that's deeply embedded, especially in the preachers of that time, the Puritan preachers. That they have very strong doctrinal teaching from the scriptures always coupled with very heavy application, a very practical application. So they would say that our faith must be theoretical or doctrinal, but it must also be practical. And our practice has to be doctrinal, and our doctrine has to be practical. Like the two have to be 
almost inseparable in that sense. And this is what you find here. He's talking about how to build a civilization. And his basic point is the unity of the spirit and Christian love, weeping with them that weep, um, rejoicing with them that rejoice, keeping the bonds. And then God will show us more truth. Do you see that? If we are living together as one body, he says God will make known to us more and more of his wisdom, his power, his goodness, and his truth than formerly we've been acquainted with. So that means God can blind your mind if you don't live according to his ways and love your brethren. He can keep back truth from you. It's there in the Bible, but he's not going to let you see the full extent of it. But if you follow after his ways, if you're practicing your faith, not merely being a hearer, then God opens up new understanding to you of the greatness of God. And that's what he's saying. That's basic Puritan preaching. You have to know the doctrine, but you have to do what God calls you to. And as you do what God calls you to, he'll let you know more about the doctrine. He'll show you more of his wisdom, his goodness, etc. Then he says, We shall find that the God of Israel is among us, when ten of us shall be able to resist a thousand of our enemies. When, we shall make, when he shall make us a praise and glory that all men shall say of succeeding plantations, the Lord make it like that of New England. For we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. Now what's interesting, America to this day is a model for other nations around the earth. We're starting to lose that status. That's something that we've lost our grip on. Why? Because we've lost what he's talking about. We've lost the truth that undergirds a Christian civilization. But it is a fact that up until very recently, the nations of the earth, where do they want to go for a model of how to build their civilizations? What are the communist nations, what do they want to imitate? Well, they want to imitate America. That's what they want to do. Because they look to us, and that that candlestick's almost gone, but they have historically looked to us as, we want to be like that nation. So what he's saying actually occurred. So this is the city on a hill. This is where they saw the future going. Page two there. The pilgrims, we often hear about the Mayflower Compact. They were in Holland before they came over here. They got kicked out of England, went to Holland. And from Holland, they were moved here to uh, Plymouth. They would call it Plymouth Rock. So this is their, their disputation about should we actually go? Okay, we've only been here in Holland about 11 or 12 years should we move now? And there were reasons given why they should or shouldn't. This is one of the reasons they should. Lastly, and which was not least, a great hope and inward zeal they had of laying some good foundation, or at least to make some way thereunto for the propagating and advancing the gospel of the kingdom of Christ in those remote parts of the world. Yea, though they should be but even as stepping stones unto others for the performing of so great a work. These and some other like reasons moved them to undertake this resolution of their removal, the which they afterward prosecuted with so great difficulties as by the sequel will appear. Now, again, same kind of doctrinal understanding as the Puritans. The difference between a pilgrim and a Puritan is the pilgrims said we need to separate from the Church of England. The Puritans said we need to stay in and try to purify it. But doctrinally, they were virtually indistinguishable. Practically, some believed that every church is its own presbytery, the independents or pilgrims. And then the 
Puritans believe that the church is a presbytery as well as a local congregation. But as far as their doctrine, very similar. And you'll see that here. They're going to face tremendous difficulties. They know they will. They know they're going to have problems with the water, with the natives, with the land, with, with the farming, with the weather. Everything's going to be against them. And yet they say, one of the reasons we want to go is to be like a stepping stone for others to bring the gospel to this continent. Because their belief was that God was going to build his kingdom among all the nations of the earth and that if they could just be like a stepping stone toward that end, their life purpose would be fulfilled. In fact, uh, if you ever get a chance to see the 1629 Massachusetts Bay Seal, it's a picture of an Indian. And the words coming out of the Indian's mouth is from the book of Acts, come over and help us. So the seal of their commonwealth, of their plantation was... There are people in need of the gospel. And we're going to establish a, a civil compact, a civil body, with the end of reaching the heathen with the gospel. That's a very different way of thinking about it than what we'll talk about in the practical application part. There's a, a vast gulf between the way that we think of civil government and the way they thought of it. And a lot of it has to do with their view of the future. What does the future hold? Is, is the title King of Kings merely a nice word that we use or does it actually have significance as the relationship between civil government and Jesus Christ who's raised from the dead they believed it had actual significance that it was a title of authority which he held over the nations of the earth and so that for their going into the wilderness and all the difficulties and troubles they had a long-term view that Christ is going to establish his kingdom on the earth and even if we're just like stepping stones I want to be part of that that's how they thought of it. Okay, now, when the uh, pilgrims came to America and the Puritans, does anybody know what Bible they read from? Geneva. The Geneva Bible, that is correct. And the Geneva Bible has notes that follow the text. I think it was the first one with uh, the actual verse numbers placed in. But they had notes in it that would give you some helpful thoughts about the text. So if you ever see the picture of William Bradford standing there like the statue where he has the Bible in his hand, that's what he had. He had the Geneva Bible. So I just wanted to bring out some of the notes from that. From Romans 11.11, God appointed this casting off of the Jews that it might be an occasion to call the Gentiles. And again, might turn this calling of the Gentiles to be an occasion to restore the Jews. You remember this? Paul says God took the natural branches out of the olive tree, broke them off, and then what did he do? He took the wild olive branches, right? And what did he do? He grafted them into that same tree so that they would partake in the root and the fatness of Israel. But then Paul goes on to say that he magnified his ministry as the apostle to the Gentiles because by the work of the gospel progressing among the Gentiles, God would move Israel to jealousy and would bring them back like dead branches put into their own olive tree. They would be put back. And this is what he's talking, the notes are talking about here. God would make the rejection of the Jews the occasion for the calling of the Gentiles. Then he'd take the calling of the Gentiles as an occasion to restore the Jews. And they go on. That is, that they being inflamed and provoked by jealousy of the Gentiles, then might themselves at length embrace the gospel. And then verse 25 of the same chapter, 
they state there in the notes, the blindness of the Jews is neither so universal that the Lord has no elect in that nation, neither will it be continual. For there will be a time in which they also, as the prophets have foretold, will effectually embrace that which they now so stubbornly, for the most part, reject and refuse. Okay, so God rejected the Jews, grafted in the Gentiles, the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, then God brings them back like life from the dead. And their view is that that's what the prophets taught. That's the Old Testament teaching, that's the New Testament teaching, that is the promise that God made. Okay, there is a gentleman named Thomas Shepard in the next quotation. He was a pastor in New England, also, interestingly enough, just think with me for a second, professor at Harvard. So imagine if a professor at Harvard espoused what he's about to say in this quotation here. Uh, His book, Clear Sunshine of the Gospel, Breaking Forth Upon the Indians in New England, he says, The utmost ends of the earth are designed and promised to be in the possession of Christ. Now remember, in Colossians, it says that Christ is to have the preeminence in all things. And then it says that all things were created by him and what? For him. So this is what he's saying. The utmost ends of the earth are designed for Christ, for his possession. But not only so, he says they've been promised as his possession. The end of the earth will be his possession. Psalm 2 tells us all he has to do is ask. And that's what we sang also in Psalm 22. And he'll refer to that here in a moment. He goes on. This little we see is something in hand. To earnest to us those things which are in hope. Earnest is like a down payment. God gives us a few conversions among the heathens because he's going to give us all the heathens. He starts with this small down payment in possession, but that's because he's given us hope that all nations will become his disciples. Something in possession to ensure us of the rest in promise. When the ends of the earth shall see his glory... And the kingdoms of the world shall become the kingdoms of the Lord and his Christ. When he shall have dominion from sea to sea. And they that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him. Psalm 22, 27. Revelation eleven fifteen, Psalm 72, verses 8 through 11. And we've looked at those passages. Those are some of the passages we touched on in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. This is the founding faith of Harvard, actually. This is the founding faith of Princeton, as we'll look at in a little bit. This is the founding faith of America, actually. Um, The next quotation there, strength out of weakness concerning the progress of the gospel among the Indians in New England. Now, this is very interesting. This book was written by a gentleman named John Eliot. Has anybody ever heard of him? He was a uh, minister of the gospel, came to New England, he actually wrote down the language of the New England Indians. He, he figured out their grammar. He figured out their language. He wrote them down a Bible, actually. And his missionary work was propagated through the funding of the uh, parliament in England. Now, this letter that we're reading from was written by several ministers in the United Kingdom to the parliament to encourage them to continue that good work that they had begun. So think about this. This is the civil magistrate. Just think about the parliament of the United Kingdom at this moment. Would they be willing to listen to these kinds of words? Would they be willing to put money 
to forward the work of the gospel so that all the nations of the earth could become Christian? I don't think so. But that's where they were right then. And so this is actually from all kinds of ministers. It's a, a preface to Mr. Eliot's book. And in this preface, they're giving reasons why we should be encouraged and delighted in the conversions we're seeing among the Indians. And they say this. We have therefore thought fit to commend this great work of Christ unto the view of all the saints under these following considerations. First, hereby the kingdom of Christ is enlarged and the promise made unto him in the covenant between him and his father accomplished. His dominion shall be from sea to sea. Anybody recognize that one? Where's that from? They got it from somewhere. Psalm 72, that his dominion would be from the river to the ends of the earth and from sea to sea, he would have that dominion. That's a promise that God the Father, they're saying, gave to God the Son, that he would have that dominion. And they go on. And from the flood unto the world's end. I thought about singing Psalm 72, but I decided on Psalm 22. But there are a lot of psalms that deal with these promises. That's why they sang the Psalms, actually. When the New England Puritans came and the pilgrims, they would sing from the Psalms because it's filled with hope about the triumph of Christ's kingdom in space and time upon his resurrection. Okay, so they go on. Therefore, his design is upon all the kingdoms of the earth that he may take possession of them for himself. They shall all become the kingdoms of the Lord and of his Christ, Revelation eleven fifteen, and the kingdom and dominion under the whole heaven, being so possessed by Christ, shall be given to the saints of the Most High, Daniel 7, verse 18. Our prayer is, thy kingdom come, to see the promise made unto Christ fulfilled, and the prayers of the saints answered, should be matter of great rejoicing unto us, and of high praises unto God. So this is their understanding, the city on a hill, that the kingdom of Jesus Christ is advancing, that our duty is to call on God to fulfill the promise he's made to his son, and therefore to work toward the end that we're praying toward. Just like we say, give us this day our daily bread, right? And then do we say, therefore I don't have to work? No, we say, give us this day our daily bread, and then Paul says, and if a man will not work, Make sure he gets welfare checks. Make sure he gets the stimulus checks. No, let him not eat. Then his stomach will work for him and force him to labor. Right? That's what Solomon says in the Proverbs. So in the same way, when we pray, thy kingdom come, then we go to work. We use the means that he's appointed toward that end. So in any case, they're saying, you, Parliament of England and of the three kingdoms, You have a duty to fund this work and to rejoice in it because God has called for all the kingdoms of the earth to be the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. We're taught to pray for this as his people. God has made promise to his son and this is the basis on which they labored. Okay, continuing in that same preface there on page three. Again, that was the, what was that? The second reason that we looked at? No, that was the first reason. This is the fourth reason. Fourthly, hereby the fullness of the Gentiles draws near to be accomplished, that the calling of the Jews may be hastened. Remember, we looked at Peter hastening unto the coming day of God by all godliness and righteousness, living soberly. 
the godliness of the church and the progress of the kingdom among the Gentiles hastens on the conversion of the Jews. Uh, When Gentiles who profess to be Christians worship graven images, what do you think that does for the hastening of the conversion of the Jews? It puts a stiff arm to it and says, we don't want you to become Christians. We want you to become idolaters. And the Jews already got over that problem by the Babylonian captivity. So they're not having any part of a Christianity that worships idols. They will not listen to anyone who worships idols. They won't listen anyways. But God promises that supernaturally one day they will. But it will be when the church has purified itself, when, not itself, but when Christ has purified the church and the Gentiles are converted and the gospel goes forth, they're saying that will bring the hastening of the conversion of the Jews. Then they go on. The scripture speaks of a double conversion of the Gentiles. The first before the conversion of the Jews, they being branches wild by nature, grafted into the true olive tree instead of the natural branches which are broken off. This fullness of the Gentiles shall come in before the conversion of the Jews. Until then, blindness hath happened unto Israel. Romans 11.25 So that's the first step. Jews rejected, Gentiles grafted in, fullness of the Gentiles comes in, then the conversion of the Jews. They go on. The second, after the conversion of the Jews, as appears from Acts 15, 16, and 17, after this I will return and build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord And all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord. Hence it appears that there are some Gentiles upon whom the Lord's name is called that are a people to him, even whilst the tabernacle of David lies in its ruins. And when he hath built again this tabernacle of David, that there are a residue of men, the remainder of the Gentiles that shall inquire after the Lord and worship him, together with those Gentiles that were formerly converted. So here's the, here's the, this is the New England theology of the future. This is the founding faith of our colonies and of America. You have the Gentiles grafted in. You have their fullness. Then you have the conversion of the Jews. And after that, if there's any other Gentile nation that hasn't been converted up to that point, they will be converted too. And it will be massive revival. In fact... This theology is the theology of the first great awakening right before the founding of America. It's the, basically, it's the founding father's faith. It's Witherspoon's theology. It's Jonathan Edwards' theology. It's uh, David Brainerd's theology. It's uh, George Whitfield's theology. It's even John Wesley's theology to a certain extent, although modified a little bit. Okay, they go on. The first conversion of the Gentiles in its fullness makes way for the coming in of the Jews, the king of the East, Therefore, to see this work go on should cause the people of God to lift up their heads and expect that the time of the fulfilling of the promise is near. And that's their, that's their hope. We're going out to evangelize these lost tribes, these people out here in the wilderness, these Indians. And once we see them and other Gentile nations come under the authority of King Jesus, then we can pray and we can expect that God will convert the Jews as well, that he will draw them back into his kingdom. Okay, the Savoy Declaration. Uh, New England Congregationalists, which is pretty much all of New England for a substantial 150 years, more or less, this is their doctrinal platform. 
from 1658. They say, We expect that in the latter days, Antichrist being destroyed, the Jews called, and the adversaries of the kingdom of his dear son broken, the churches of Christ being enlarged and edified through a free and plentiful communication of light and grace, shall enjoy in this world a more quiet, peaceable, and glorious condition than they have enjoyed. So that's their anticipation. This is the founding faith of New England. These are the Congregationalist doctrinal platforms. Presbyterians had something very similar. Baptists had something very similar. Uh, Dutch Reformed had something very similar. But this is the Congregationalists, which are really uh, the, the stock of New England, basically. This is what they believed about the future. That the kingdom will advance, that the adversaries will be overthrown, that the Jews will be called, that the churches of Christ will be enlarged and edified. And that's exactly what the millennium is all about. If you'll remember when we looked at Revelation 20, Satan is bound. Why? So that he can no longer deceive the nations, which means that Christ will come and spoil his goods. Christ binds the strong man so that he can spoil his goods, take all the nations away from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And this is what they're thinking when they come here. This is why they want to found a city on a hill. This is how they integrate their politics with their faith is through this doctrine of the city on a hill, and there are other doctrines as well. Uh, but in any case, now the history of redemption by Jonathan Edwards. Some people call him the greatest American philosopher. Some people call him the greatest American theologian, however you want to think about it. Um, he was also president of Princeton. So again, think about the foundation of Princeton. This is from his book from 1773, talking about the period from the resurrection of Christ until the final judgment and the end of the world. He says, I would speak of the prosperous state of the church through the greater part of this period. And in general, I would observe two things, that this is most properly the time of the kingdom of heaven upon earth. Though the kingdom of heaven was in a degree set up soon after Christ's resurrection, and in a further degree in the time of Constantine, and though the Christian church in all ages of it is called the kingdom of heaven, yet this is the principal time of the kingdom of heaven upon earth, the time principally intended by the prophecies of Daniel. That's the one we were reading about earlier, where the saints of the Most High will reign together with the Messiah who's given a kingdom by God after his resurrection and ascension. And then he goes on, number one, now is the principal fulfillment of all the prophecies of the Old Testament, which speak of the glorious times of the gospel in these latter days. Though there has been a glorious fulfillment of those prophecies already in the times of the apostles and of Constantine, yet the expressions are too high to suit any other time entirely, but that which is to succeed the fall of Antichrist. Okay, and that's just a taste for the early, the middle, and the latter way that the American colonists thought about the future. And uh, one, I wanted to recommend a couple of books to you guys. One is, this is the works of Jonathan Edwards. He has a whole thing called the history of redemption in here, where he goes into from creation to the flood, from the flood until Christ's resurrection, from Christ's resurrection until the end of the world, and kind of traces out what does the Bible say about history and where it's going. Um, another book that may be of interest is called Redeemer Nation. This is not a Christian scholar who did this. It's a, a secular University of Chicago scholar. 
But what he does is he traces out the idea of the millennium in American theology and how that impacts the culture of America. And what he shows, which is really interesting, is that if you take Puritanism as the founding fathers that we've just looked at and that whole generation of colonial Americans, if you take that doctrine of the city on a hill and the progress of the kingdom of God and you secularize it, And you say, let's take Christ and the Holy Spirit and the scriptures out of the picture. It's called the doctrine of progress. It's called the progressive movement. And it's the difference between the first great awakening and the second great awakening. The first great awakening is a belief that there is this promise, these sets of promises that God is going to fulfill through the means of preaching. The second great awakening is men can actually manipulate God into making those promises fulfilled. You can have the the altar call, you can have the mourner's seat, you can have the anxious bench, you can have a tent revival, and you can cause a revival to happen. Have you ever seen a revival scheduled? I've seen it. Come to the revival, Tuesday to Saturday. Oh, really? Did you get some kind of revelation from God that he's going to start a revival at a certain point? No, you didn't. So you can't schedule a revival. God has to move by his spirit as he's promised in his word. We have to beg him to do it. And if he wants to do it, he'll do it. And we know generally he said he does want to do it. In fact, these promises that the Puritans relied on are the same promises that they prayed. God, send forth your spirit. Jonathan Edwards, he's the one who, anybody know the name of his famous sermon? Yes. Did you know that he read that sermon word for word? From the pulpit. He didn't, it wasn't animated. It wasn't, he wasn't drumming up emotion in people. He was reading a dry puritanical doctrinal and practical Puritan sermon. And he had done it before several times to no effect. People weren't interested in it. And somehow God moved in that dry doctrinal practical Puritan sermon. And he brought revival on his timetable. In answer to the prayers of his people. Yes. But not on a schedule where we say God... Let me book you here. I'll get you here on Tuesday. You can change hearts then and move. No, no, no. God has to do it. And if we take out that that sovereign work of God and we make it the work of men as they did in the Second Great Awakening, guess what happens? The progressive movement comes right out of the Second Great Awakening. All these, oh, well, we've got to fix this in society. We've got to fix that in society. We've got to fix the other in society. And we can perfect man by what? Social engineering, right? If we just put the right things, the church did it first, by the way. If we just put the right environment in place, we can make people become Christians and we can schedule a revival. No, you can't. God has to work it sovereignly. He has to choose when it's time and he has to use the means that he's ordained, not the means that you made up. Paul said preaching. They say altar call. Paul said the word, you know, send out preachers and they'll preach and people will have faith through the means that God has ordained. And they say, no, you have to like manipulate them, not declare the truth, but get them to kind of laugh at your jokes and weep at your stories and bawl their eyes out and come forward and make a decision. Well, the last time there was an altar in the Bible in a church service was in the old covenant when the veil, the temple was rent. That was the last time God said, here's an altar. I want you to use it in your worship. But they made it up. It was a man-made device. And so American society drifted away. And that's what he deals with. They drifted from the Puritan doctrine of the Holy Spirit working among men in fulfillment of the promises made to Christ to we can make those promises happen by our actions. And that produced the progressive movement 
the temperance movement, the suffrage movement, the abolitionist movement, you name it movement. All the movements that have come since then, the progressive party in America is who? The Democrats, right? They think that they can do things by raising more money. Can you change the weather? Well, yes, just give me more money and I'll change the weather. No, you can't. Well, they're progressives, so there's no bounds to progressivism. There's always some dream that they'll come up with about how they can progress and make things better. They can't because God has put limitations and he said, you've got to rely on me. But all that to say, uh, a good pointer of how we got to where we are is we lost the Holy Spirit in the church. We lost the word of God. We lost that notion of it's a sovereign work of God. Yes, in fulfillment of his promise, but we can't jerk it up. We can't manipulate it to happen. And then finally, this book, The Puritan Hope, very uh, good detailed analysis of a lot of the doctrines of our founding fathers and of those in England who kind of paved the way for the way that the founding fathers thought about the future. All right, so that's the end of this. And then God willing, next time in November, he said, the doctor said he would be here, Dr. O'Neill. So I'm hoping, and please pray for him and for his daughter. Um, And then we'll get into practical applications or final applications from the series on City on a Hill or a Sinking Ship.